the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Are you looking around lately at protests of various kinds, at people pulling down posters of hostages, of all the angst, anger, rage, misunderstanding, disinformation that is going on between the two sides of this Middle Eastern conflict and asking yourself, how the hell did we get here? Well, I think we can turn to one author, and he's also a lawyer and the president of FIRE, which he will explain in a moment, to explain a little bit about how we got here and why it has gotten so out of control, but that there might be some hope, too. we got to cling to that. That's next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya Podcast. Greg Lukianoff has written a number of books about what's going on with the American mind. The mind, not the brain, the mind. Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate. That was a work from 2012. Freedom from Speech, 2014. The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That he wrote with Jonathan Haidt in 2018. And now The Canceling of the American Mind. And these are all so important and pivotal in the way that we look at what the heck is going on, especially on campuses of higher learning, the colleges and universities that are turning out people who are willing to support Hamas and say defund the police. So let's get into it with this wonderful writer, lawyer, and again, uh, he's fighting for free speech on on campus in America. And it's, it's not a pretty picture, but it's one that we have to look at. Greg Lukianoff is next. Well, America is at a tipping point. It's Michelle Tafoya to tell you about a new movie you really have to see. Dinesh D'Souza's movie, Police State, exposes the government's relentless persecution of the conservative MAGA movement. The America we know and love is becoming more and more like a police state every day. The FBI has turned its eyes away from the real dangers in the world to target what they call domestic terrorists with a totalitarian agenda that's treating conservative Americans like criminals. They're targeting their political opponents using mass surveillance and censorship, indoctrinating our kids and threatening families with military style raids on our homes, threatening people like you and me who speak our minds and stand up for freedom of speech, freedom of religion our God-given American liberties. Directed by Dinesh D'Souza, Debbie D'Souza, and Bruce Schooley, Police State sounds the alarm. If you demand your freedom, they're coming after you. But how do we get here? And how do we turn the tide of this tyrannical government's agenda? You got to see this movie, Police State. Buy it or stream it now at policestatefilm.net. That's policestatefilm.net. Greg Lukianoff, it's great to have you here. I'm a fan of your work because 
someone's got to say this stuff. Yeah. And someone's got to put it out there in a way that is very clear and to, you know, and, and makes it undeniable mm-hmm. what is going on. Let me ask you what your first sort of foray into cancel culture was. What, what opened your eyes to what was going on? Cause I think you were ahead of the curve a little bit. A little bit. Um, I've been working on campuses for 22 years and I've been, I've been defending academic freedom and free speech since almost right after I graduated from law school. Um, so I, I joined the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education back in 2001 when it was only about a year and a half old. And uh, I became the president of it in 2006. And yeah, uh, and, and starting in 2001, it was already easier to get in trouble for your opinion than I understood. Um, that um, Not totally shocked coming from a place like Stanford Law School that was, uh, yeah, could be pr- pretty PC. It wasn't a total shock, but it was nonetheless, you know, worse than I thought. And it's been getting, you know, steadily worse for a long time now. You always have like the year that's not quite as bad. Um, and then you're like, oh, everything's improving. And then and it's like, I shouldn't have said that. I just jinxed it. It's going to it's about to get much, much worse. And man, the last, you know, five years when it comes to cancel culture, when it comes to free speech on campus have been truly a crisis. Yeah. And we our definition of cancel culture and canceling of the American mind is the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, expelled, punished, et cetera, um, uh, around 2014 and accelerating in 2017 for speech that would, um, in other contexts, be protected by the First Amendment. It's really an analogy to public employee law um, and uh, the culture of fear that resulted from it. And it wasn't subtle. In 2014, something changed on campus, something changed off campus. People were losing their jobs for cracking jokes or for being misunderstood in many cases. And it and it really accelerated in 2017 and 2020 and 2021 were unlike any years I've I'd ever seen. I wonder if 21, you know, 20 and 21 and, and because I, I'm with you there. Like I, I, I got on Twitter for my job when I was working on the sidelines of the NFL games. You, you had to tweet stuff out. Yeah. But there was a point when I started saying, you know, here we are in COVID lockdowns. I'm going to suggest this or I'm going to retweet this article or or something. And the backlash that oh, came yeah. during COVID and the, the sort of the the line in the sand was drawn. You're either pro-science or you're anti-science. <laughs> right. And it went, it just, it seemed to go crazy. It and did. so I wonder how much, and, and also in 2020, there was the George Floyd moment. Yep. So uh, is it possible that those two things coalesce to just have this cancel culture or this attitude that leads to cancel culture shoot up. Yeah. Well, to be clear, cancel culture was already there by 2020, but man, did COVID um, make it worse. And definitely after George Floyd, we saw um, a uptick in case submissions from professors and students, unlike we'd ever seen in our entire existence at fire. Um, We saw um, uh, more cases in, in June and July than we'd see in a whole year. Um, uh, earlier in our existence. And the the heartbreaking and frustrating thing about this is I'm, I'm a civil libertarian. Like, like, I be, like I thought what happened to George Floyd was horrifying. Of course. And, but I immediately thought, 
okay, so this might be an opportunity to pass the following sensible reforms that can make uh, that much less likely. I hope we can get national consensus on bringing this together. But unfortunately, uh, particularly on campus, it turned into this sort of free-for-all of like, hey, I remember someone who wrote something racially insensitive from like five years ago. Um, or, you know, as we talk about the Mike Adams case, the guy who would eventually have to get canceled and it was a friend of mine, killed himself. Um, he tweeted out, he, he, he cracked a joke likening um, uh, lockdowns to slavery, you know, uh, and that led to a campaign to get him fired. Uh, and there were also cases where people had like uh, teenagers, you know, 14 year olds had uh, used inappropriate language in a Snapchat video years ago, and they were losing their admissions to prestigious schools because of things they said in the past. So I'm kind of like, wait a second. So we're just faced with this horrifying situation. We had the opportunity to do something to make sure it doesn't happen again. And instead we decided, no, actually we're going to focus our energies on canceling people for mildly transgressive opinions, even possibly years ago. So it was, it was a very depressing and frustrating time. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It was. So when you at FIRE, uh, you get a, a submission of a case. Yep. What, what does it start with? How Can you walk us through sure. what, what happens when someone comes to you and says, this is wrong, this is what's happened to me? What's the first step? The first step is to read the case submission. So we always require people to be able to explain what happened to them. And sometimes it's asking a little bit too much. Sometimes we have to look into it further to get a sense of what the First Amendment or free speech violation was. Um, but if we see that there was, if we see it wasn't ultimately a free speech violation, if it turns out it's like I was censored and then I hit this dude, it's like no, no, I'm sorry, yeah. you're not allowed, you're, you're not allowed to hit that dude. Yeah. Or if it sounds like it's actual racial harassment, for example, you know, it's like, and that's a standard of like of, of uh, focused, severe, persistent, and pervasive behavior that's discriminatory on an individual. It's not just having an opinion. Um, you know, we look at, we do the whole legal analysis on whether or not we think this is a free speech case. If we get, if it gets through that stage and, uh, an awful lot do, because there are so many cases, um, that, that really are, we then try to figure out if we can prove it, you know, and we look through documentation, then we write the school generally to give them a chance to do the right thing. Um, and it used to be the case that many times they would increasingly schools seem to wait for us to do a press release or even launch a lawsuit, which is not not a good scene. Um, and then we stay on the case to, to uh, until it's over, you know, to, to try to vindicate the rights of the student or professor who got in trouble. But with the kind of influx of cases we saw back in 2020, um, and even though we tried to respond to every single one of them, it was easier for schools just to ignore us because um, with that volume, it's like, you know, you got to choose your battles here. You can't, you know, you're not a 
a, a billion dollar organization. You don't right. have enough enough uh, people to actually you know really fight these to the end. What do you think has been your biggest victory that maybe gives you hope that you know? Because I know in the book here, and we're going to get into that more. Yeah. You do think there's hope. So is there? One case in particular that you would describe as being, you know, that sort of, yes, Tiger Woods makes the putt on 18 moment that, yeah. you know, that that makes you believe in your cause that much more. Well, I'm not super op- optimistic about higher ed, just to be clear. I get I get oh. told that I'm an optimist a lot. And I'm like, no, no, higher ed means massive reform. <laughs> like, 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 like no, no, no two ways about that. Wow. But I did think um, some of the uh, some of the universities handling of um, uh, institutional statements. I actually thought Stanford's behavior after the extremely shameful, and, and this is at my alma mater, this is at my law school, um, they, uh, students and administrators together you know, organized an event that was a shout down of a sitting for Fifth Circuit judge. Correct. And I emphasize that because that's one step below the Supreme Court. It's a big deal to have a Fifth Circuit judge come to, and they shouted him down. The administrator got up, read a pre-prepared speech, you know, on whether or not free speech, whether or not the juice of free speech was worth, worth the squeeze. And it was generally just a very shameful moment yeah. um, and particularly awful for the students who had, who had invited um, the, the, that, that president, the, that judge there. They put all the pictures of the students who invited him up on posters. You know, like it, it was um, something that they would wrongfully call doxing, but nonetheless, like it was very, they made it very personal. But the good news there was Jenny Martinez, um, the dean of the law school, came out with a very strong statement saying, we respect freedom of speech here. Um, we actually believe in political neutrality or institutional restraint. We don't take positions on every case that comes up. Um, and the, the administrator who was uh, involved in it has not been invited back uh, to Stanford. Um, and those are steps that actually do give me a little bit of hope. Okay. Not a ton, but, 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 but a little bit. Um, and she's been promoted to provost. So, you know, I, I have some hope there. A lot of my hope, though, is with the other experiments. You know, like I think University of Texas at Austin is an experiment that they're doing to try to start an entirely new liberal arts college that has viewpoint diversity and uh, respects freedom of speech and academic freedom. So that gives me some hope. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I am optimistic about the long term fate of freedom of speech, at least in the United States, for this reason. Freedom of speech works really well. And if you have a company in which people can disagree with each other productively, you're going to have an advantage over other companies. Mm-hmm. And if you and if you have a society in which people can uh, speak their minds and be their authentic selves, that's uh, that's a huge advantage over other societies as well. Well, I, I like your hopefulness there. The canceling of the American mind is, is this your fourth or your fifth book? Depending on which, what you call a book, this is my fourth. I wrote a very short book called Freedom from Speech, which I always wonder if it's long enough to even be considered a book, but I'm I proud of it. You should be, and I think we're going to call it a, a book. Um, the foreword in here by Jonathan Haidt is really revealing, and, and the names of the chapters are really revealing. What we know is that it, it, this is what I always come back to. To me, it started with coddling, and I know the, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, a student gets sensitive and everyone goes and rushes to protect that student, provide yeah. him or her a safe space, uh, segregate libraries, whatever it is, so that people, you know, the, the book White Fragility comes out. And that word fragility just gives me the, the heebie-jeebies. It, it likens me to, it, for me, I, I think of this. I have two children. Uh, I raised I raised them to be tough. 
to, you know, oh, you got sick. That's okay. All right, fine. We're, you know, maybe antibiotics, maybe not, but I'm not going to, you know, stop you from going to, to a daycare because viruses run around daycares. Yeah. You're going to run into these. And the only way to get some, you know, thick skin is to run into these and get right. through them. Same with, uh, you got in a fight with your friends. Go figure it out. I'm not here to protect you. I'm going to try to tell you what I think and what your stance should be, but, or could be, but let's yeah. go figure it out. You, you got it. You, you don't go through the world unscathed. And if you do, it's pretty uninteresting. And by the way, the scar tissue is really, really helpful all through your life. Yeah. So, but we're not as a society and particularly in these higher institutions of learning, it doesn't seem like we want to allow kids to go through that. We're so protective and that makes for weak, unchallenged, really uninteresting people. It also makes for anxious and depressed people. I mean, that that was the, um, uh, the the revelation that led to coddling the American mind. And ultimately, it came from me getting, to be frank, suicidally depressed back in 2007, partially because by being in the culture war all the time, I just got mentally exhausted. Because if you're consistent in your values um, on freedom of speech, all but a, a relatively a relative handful of deeply principled people um, will hate you when you defend someone on their side and love you when you defend someone, um, uh, you know, they like, and this can be just exhausting. And while I was recovering from that, I studied cognitive behavioral therapy. And what you learn from CBT is when your brain gives you those exaggerated, like a date goes wrong and you're like, my life is a failure. You yeah. know, um, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die alone. Like all of these kind of exaggerated things. It doesn't, preach the power of positive thinking, it preaches just simply rationally interrogate that. Actually ask yourself, is this, am I catastrophizing here? <laughs> am I mind reading? Am I claiming to know the future? And if you get used to it, um, and it's been a revelation for me, like my, my, my depressive episodes and anxiety um, have improved wildly um, since, um, uh, since studying it. But on campus, I'm like, wait a second. On campus, you seem to be telling people do catastrophize, do engage in emotional reasoning, do do negative filtering. And I'm like, not only is this going to be a disaster for academic freedom and free speech, which it has been, it's going to be a disaster for mental health, which was our theory going into the original article, which we uh, started writing in 2014, wrote in 2015, and our book, Coddling the American Mind. Um, and man, the, the mental health part of it, we thought we'd see like a little scholarly dip in young people's mental health. And it's been an absolute disaster. It's yeah. been so much worse than even John and I thought. Uh, it's, it's really sad. And what makes it all the more sad and frustrating is it, it doesn't have to happen. No, it's, not, it's really not that hard to prevent this. Honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the moment it can be a challenge, but are we that lazy that we don't want to stress ourselves to go through these things with our kids, with our students, with our friends and help to make them stronger. That's how did we get that weak? That's what I wonder. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and this leads me to point out one of the differences between coddling of the American mind and canceling of the American mind. My, my follow-up um, with the great 23 year old Ricky Schlott, who's just absolute genius and height does the foreword for, for our new book um, is that, Cancel culture, I really, not, sorry, <clears throat> coddling, um, I really do uh, attribute largely to um, good intentions and bad ideas. Yeah. Whereas cancel culture <clears throat> is 
people feeling they're justified in being cruel and just loving the opportunity to be really, really cruel to individual yeah. people. So, it's yeah. a, that I don't think is good intentions. I think that's actually harnessing some of the worst of human nature. And, and people always feel better about being nasty if they think they're doing it for a good cause. Sure. Um, but when it comes to uh, coddling, I think one of the things that's happened is we all like, um, and the social science is very clear on this. We increasingly live more isolated from people we politically disagree with, um, like in physical space. And then, of course, on social media, you can completely wall yourself off from people you disagree with. And I think the left and the right kind of needed each other because, yeah, you know, like if, if you're looking for things to change and you're on the left and you, and you want, you know, progress, um, that's healthy. But it helps to be balanced out by someone who's reminding you of ancient wisdom, of conservative, uh, you know, philosophy, because they balance each out, uh, other out pretty well. But when they're completely not talking to each other, you end up in a situation where just the any of the ancient wisdom, any of the old ideas about how to raise kids, about why it's actually not doing them a favor to not have them be somewhat tough uh, to to be able to handle stress and anxiety. Um, nobody's saying that to them anymore. So parents, you know, who grow up, uh, who raise their kids in this way are only hearing, you've got to protect them. You got to protect them. You got to protect them. Oh, you don't want them to be traumatized by getting a B. You know, you don't want them to be traumatized by losing a sports match, you know? And, and, and it's just like, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I remember actually reading a book called the myth of the spoiled child, like the, uh, an embarrassing book. No, no, no. I mean, I was about to say no offense to the author. Nah, I guess, I, I guess <laughs> I'm sort of offending the author, but it, it talked about the horror of, and the pain you'd be causing a student if they, um, you know, lost a game. And I'm like, I was a football player. Guess what happens when you lose games? You get used to it and you're kind of like, oh, okay. And it actually made the wins all that much sweeter and all that much, all that much better. So we've lost all this ancient wisdom about how to raise kids to get them ready, you know, to, to, to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And now we're seeing it actually almost this term's overused, but weaponized that essentially kind of like the fragility of, of children that we've created artificially because they're not naturally fragile creatures. Right. They're actually naturally quite strong. Yeah. And now we're turning that into, oh, but you can't say that because now our, our students will definitely be hurt by hearing a non-conforming, usually conservative opinion. And so that's where this cancellation stuff comes in as well. It's it's and it is mean and it is there are bad intentions behind canceling someone. You so can't handle what they've said that you think rather than just saying, OK, I'm going to turn the page or I'm going to not follow them on social media or I'm going to change the channel. You're saying they should be punished. Yeah. And it's crazy to me because I am like you. Free speech is absolutely essential if we're going to stay who we are and, and stay true to our values as civilized people. So, you know, I, I had someone say to me, well, what if 95% of the campus doesn't want this person to speak and only 5% of them do? I mean, they're, they shouldn't be allowed to speak because so many people don't want them to. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, it doesn't work that way. We got to defend even the people whose thoughts we can't stand. Yeah. We don't have to go attend it. Don't go. Yeah. Don't go. It's, it seems simple to me. And I'm wondering what it's going to take to, to have this reemergence, if you will, of this toughness, of this ability to see yourself as resilient and to see yourself as someone who can handle the violence of a word. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, we spent about a third of the book talking about potential solutions and Ricky and I are both under no illusion that, um, that th those are even enough. Um, we have to think about how we teach K through 12. We have to think about how we do higher education. We have to think about how we parent our own children. I mean, I learned so much about parenting my, 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 uh, my kids. Um, this is a nice one. Oh, um, <laughs> of, uh, they're now five and seven. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I learned a lot from uh, writing uh, and working on the, the coddling of the American mind. And I want to be really clear. I'm an anxious parent. Absolutely. 100%. Um, but you have to overcome that if yeah. you want to have kids who can lead, lead a, like a fully self-actualized life. Kids who have self-efficacy. The idea, you know, sometimes things like I had superpowers when I got to higher education compared to a lot of my classmates, because I'd had a job since I was 11 and right. my mom worked. Right. Nights, you know, like, so, and it, and it was really funny to see people who couldn't like the, the novelty of personal freedom, just watching them kind of like spiral downward and being kind of like, okay, that, that's not a big deal, man. And that's the thing that people don't get. And I say this to my kids and this is where I sound incredibly old fashioned, but, um, but I believe it boys, if you can learn to enjoy study and work, your life is going to feel easy. Yeah. And I say that as someone who, you know, um, with the exception of the stress of the culture war, which does still exhaust me, mm. getting to be a First Amendment attorney, I mean, it's one of the great joys of my life. It, I can see that. I mean, I can see it in the way you comport yourself, but I could also see why that is. Because it is so, to me, it's so undeniably right. I can't think of anything more right I don't know if righteous is the word, but more, more correct on every level than someone's ability to speak for him or herself. Now we have, now I, tell me, cause yep. here, we're in a moment right now, as yeah. we record this in late October, heading toward November of 2023, where we do have on campus, uh, a Cornell professor saying he was exhilarated yeah. by the terrorist attacks by Hamas. We have all of these protests yeah. and, and, now we've got people who are essentially saying all that torture, rape, murder, awfulness that we saw, we support it. Yeah. So this is, this is where it gets a little dicey. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. No, it's interesting because definitely on the left, there's a perception right now that there's this massive backlash against even kind of horrifying, like pro Hamas, pro-Palestinian speech. And I'm, I'm, so far, I'm not, we are investigating some cases, uh, but I'm not really seeing that. And that's partially because pro-Palestinian point of view is incredibly popular, particularly on elite campuses. The polling is actually kind of troubling, the extent to which kids under 25 are very much reflexively pro, uh, pro-Palestinian and, and default-wise pro-Hamas, like um, the, in, in the current fight, as if Hamas really speaks for the Palestinian people. Um, as opposed to being, you know, a real problem for it. Right. Uh, so we're not seeing the kind of clampdown um, that we've seen in the past. And overall, we're a free speech organization, so we think that's a good thing. There have been people who have definitely crossed the line and who are engaging in threats, actual discriminatory harassment. Um, there was a case actually at Stanford where a professor um, had his Jewish students raise their hands, the first asking them that they're Jewish, then have them go take their stuff 
go to the corner and now I'm going to lecture you on apparently the allegation that, oh, you're colonizers was what, what, what he called them. And that colonizers are responsible. Like they asked him, how many people died in the Holocaust? And they said, six million. And it's like, well, colonizers have killed more than, more than that. It's like, you, you think that, that Israel has killed more than six million Palestinians? Like the, give me a sight on that guy. So that's a case where that's something you can absolutely punish a professor for. That is out and out discrimination. And if this had been someone doing this to black students, they would have immediately understood that this is completely inappropriate. We've also been seeing situations where it's like, you know, that's a threat. No, that's actual intimidation. No, that's actually when it comes to the professor saying that he was exhilarated. Yeah. You can't have a rule that um, that professors you know need to be fired because they're even being highly offensive. Right um, now. If you look into the professor, it turns out he he can't treat his Jewish students well. That's a completely different case, right. um, and and we definitely you know have seen ones where you kind of wonder you know, but uh, so you know we're genuinely nonpartisan. What I would hope is that the current moment on campus would be a moment for uh, pro-Palestinian students to suddenly start getting freedom of speech and start getting that consequence culture was always like a flippant, stupid thing to say, sorry, um, and, and start to get maybe cancel culture looking in the recent disastrous past of cancel culture and say to themselves, wow, that we were probably wrong on that. But unfortunately, I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing I'm seeing a lot of people on the left actually saying um, their primary concern is like, oh, the, the right's hypocrites because they're fine with canceling someone who's pro Hamas. Um, but not someone who's like pro-Trump. And it's like, okay, first of all, like it's messed up to sort of like equate these two things. But you've never taken this issue seriously in the past. And if they're calling you out for being hypocrites on, on just selectively noticing it now, they have a point. Yeah, yeah. A point that I don't think they necessarily want to realize. Final question for you on, on this is, so you heard about students signing on to these declarations that were mm -hmm. really awful. Uh, and these are law students primarily. Yeah. And now you've got these big time law firms saying, you know, we had we had put out an offer to you for when you graduated to come work for us. We're rescinding that offer. Yeah, it's a private company. As far as I know, yeah. they have the right to do that. Yeah. That they 100% have the right to do that. And I, and all I try to do is get people think about a situation in which, because this is what it started to look like in 2020 and 2021, that essentially every company was a private company, but also had a political point of view. So if you, you know, were critical of BLM, for example, you yeah. could be risking, risking your career. Yeah. And I don't think that's a super healthy environment, you know, for democracy, for a democratic republic. Um, if you can technically have your First Amendment rights, but you can't hold down a job. Now, that's all I've been saying on this. And people are interpreting this as saying, you're saying that that companies need to hire people with repugnant points of view. And I'm like, I'm absolutely not saying that. I'm saying that I, like, I would be happy if there was just a thumb on the scale for everyone's entitled to their opinion. But is that going to be enough to, to make someone who, for example, works with Israeli companies or actually has a lot of you know Jewish employees to want to hire someone who seems to think that, you know, the, 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 the rapists and murderers were right. No, it probably won't be enough to overcome it. But I do hope that that in the future case where a, a lot of these other situations where someone like retweets a joke you know, from a favorite comedian and ends up getting suspended, yeah. you know, you, you know, for months, I think that might be enough to help us be a little bit to have more both free speech culture and, 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 uh, and First Amendment law at the same time. I lied. One last thing, this <laughs> uprising of this support of not necessarily Palestine, but it, it, the support of Hamas. I mean, it's undeniable, yeah. right? It's undeniable yeah. that to be 
and again, keep going back to that professor at Cornell who said, yeah. who said he was exhilarated. But I mean, when you saw what has happened, you continue to hear yeah. what has happened to innocent civilians. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they say, oh, this is the resistance. This yeah. is, this is, we've been oppressed for so long. It just seems like sane minds understand that, no, that's not what this is. Yeah. And yet, do you see more people supporting the terrorists than you expected? I, I do. Um, and, and I say that as someone who is familiar with a lot of the data about student attitudes about, um, you know, political issues. And it's definitely worse than I saw. My big fear now that there's been kind of a donor revolt about this is that some of the donors seem to be saying, OK, President, I know you, President Blah of some Ivy League school, I know you support Israel and I know you despise Hamas and you're too cowardly to say this because you're afraid that you will be canceled by your faculty and your administrators and your students um, who are vocally pro Hamas because those people are, you know, they will hound you to, to, to you're done. And so cancel culture actually produced the situation to a degree. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate the donors are, are, are taking us a, a, a step up, but I don't want them to waste that just on saying, and you have to, com um, uh, uh, to condemn Hamas. It's like, no, you should be thinking much bigger than that. The reforms that we need in higher education are much more dramatic. We need people to learn about, because I also think that these people who just kind of think that my pro Hamas point of view is something that a lot of people would agree with, that that's cancel culture too, because basically like, because the, the, the radical pro Palestinian voices have been so loud and, you know, scary to a lot of people, they haven't actually had a lot of disagreements because they're afraid they'll get canceled if they actually disagree. So I definitely think this is an opportunity for big reform. I wrote something in national review. I'm going to be writing something on my Substack, the eternally radical idea going more in depth. But I think that we, I, I think the best thing that could happen is if we created more alternative um, institutions to elite higher ed, because yes. I don't, I sometimes wonder if it actually can be saved at all. I, I wonder that too. I honestly do. It is like a, a massive question hanging over us. And either way, we got here over a number of years. This, yeah. this, this isn't just like, bam, it just happened. This is a frog that was boiling in the water from the yes. very beginning when he didn't know it. And now he's on the brink of death. So we've got to steer this ship and it may take just as long. Um, again, I, you've written some great stuff and I'm such a fan. And this is the canceling of the American mind. I recommend all of your, your books uh, to people, but this one is certainly pertinent right now. And we thank you so much for your time. I hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Really great chatting with you, Michelle. Likewise. As always, folks, I end the podcast by saying be brave and do good. And cancel culture is neither of those things. So stay away from it. We'll see you next time. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.